All right, so um, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Sharni Anantapandala and I have Dr. Gretchen Goldman with me. So um, hi, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Right, and um, your pollution, or, sorry, your work on air pollution is very interesting. Could you explain to me um, what you do in your field and your research? Yeah, so um, I can start a little bit with my background. So I was um, uh, a, uh, in undergrad, I was a science, getting a science degree and I decided that I was interested in environmental issues. And so then I decided to go to grad school and study air pollution. Um, uh, and so after I, uh, and so there I studied um, air pollution and health effects. So looking at, you know, what we can say about where air pollution levels are in a city um, and how does that relate to uh, health effects that we see. So mm -hmm. I was looking at uh, emergency department visits for cardiovascular disease and looking at the degree to which air pollution correlated with and, and could be associated with um, the, those emergency department visits. Uh, and so it was a really neat, interesting uh, science problem to have to figure out uh, exactly how do you estimate what kinds of air pollution levels people are exposed to, um, and it, can we see any health effects that seem to be related to that. Um, so I studied that in graduate school, and then the more I got interested in that, I um, got more interested in the policy side of things uh, because a lot of the reasons that we don't have cleaner air and other environmental challenges remain uh, isn't just because we haven't figured out the science of, of what, how it happens and why it happens, uh, but it's because of the, the politics around it and right. how do we get the political will to do something about it, what are the sorts of uh, needs that we have in the translation from science to policy. And so I decided I really want to be in that space and be mm -hmm. in a work in a place where I could connect the science and the policy and use some of my technical skills and combine it with communication to non-scientists, uh, whether they be uh, decision makers or journalists or uh, the public. And so uh, now I work in DC and do uh, science policy on air pollution and a range of other issues. Right. So like we have to bring more awareness to other people who aren't scientists so that they can um, feel more obliged to stand up for what, what we should really be doing about these issues. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, people can uh, learn more about, you know, what are the problems and then they can also help to um, inform and uh, push people in power to do things about it, uh, as well as taking their own action. Right. So you talked about your research on um, relating air pollutants to cardiovascular emergency department visits. Um, could you elaborate more on that research project? Yeah, so I was looking at what our uh, large-scale epidemiologic studies, they're called mm -hmm. time series studies, uh, and what they are is uh, my data set was, it was six years of data for the city of Atlanta. I was at uh, Georgia Tech, and uh, we had uh, six years of data, and every day had one value for air pollution and one value for cardiovascular disease emergency department visits. Um, and you have that for six years. And so then you can look at that correlation. So you can look at whether there's an association between those. Um, and so there were big models that would do that and look at whether it, it, whether or not it looked like when air pollution was worse, you'd get worse health outcomes. Um, and so these big models are uh, very sophisticated. It controls for a lot of 
factors that might otherwise be influencing um, uh, influencing the, the relationship. So it, you know, it controls for uh, the temperature and the day of the week and, you know, all kinds of other things that we know uh, affect uh, whether or not people go to the emergency department. Um, and so uh, if you control for all those things um, and given the uncertainty that we know exists and, you know, where people are and what they're breathing, and if you still see an association after that between the air pollutant um, and uh, the health outcome, and it's still statistically significant, um, then that says something that says that, you know, there might be something there and that is um, compelling to see uh, those connections. And the, so the part of that that I was doing was looking at uh, what number do you use on the air pollution side. So ideally, you might want that number to be representative of you know, what, what is the value that people are breathing every day? What's sort of, you know, the average uh, air pollution level that people are breathing? Um, but it turns out there's a lot of things to think about when you decide what that number should be. Because, you know, in a city, across a whole city, uh, there'd be... Off across the city of Atlanta, in my case, um, there's different air pollution levels, right? If you're right next to a roadway, it would be very different than if you were in, um, you know, the big, the big park that was further away from sources. And uh, there's different neighborhoods have different uh, levels. And it depends on the wind and whether or not, you know, are you close to the coal plant, you know, all kinds of things. So um, we would try to look at, you know, how does it change the health model if you use different uh, air pollution values? And so we would say, okay, well, what if you just did the downtown monitor as being like the best we can get? Because most, there's more people living closer to, to the center of the city than further out. So mm -hmm. it's closer to just use that. Or we could say, you know, what if we just average, take the average of all the different monitors that are around the city in different places. And then um, we try doing, you know, what if you do a population weighted average? So you weight heavier the monitors that are closer to more people and then weight lower ones that are further out. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's lots of ways you can sort of think about it. And so what we looked at was, you know, how does it change the health model if you use those different values? And then what does that mean for, um, you know, how you assess health effects in the population? Um, and so we learned some interesting things in that. I think, you know, one sort of notable takeaway from it to me was that uh, it really matters how, um, how variable the pollutant is across the city. So for pollutants like ozone, uh, they're very um, spatially homogeneous. So that means there's, it's ozone is, is the same. So whether you are at the city center or further out, you still see a lot of ozone because it just mixes in the air, it chemically reacts. So there's lots of um, ozone around. And so a lot of people will get exposed to it further out. And so because of that, it's sort of easier to you know, use whatever number for the air pollution level for ozone is, and you'd have higher confidence that that's like close to the level that people are breathing. Um, but if you take a pollutant that's not like that, so for example, uh, sulfur dioxide, which is uh, primarily in many places, it's primarily from coal-fired power plants. Right. Um, and so in Atlanta, there was a couple that were near. Um, and so for that one, it's very uh, spatially different in different places. Mm -hmm. So if you are downwind of the coal plant, you will have very high uh, sulfur dioxide levels. But if you are upwind or somewhere else in the city that's not affected by that, you'd be really low. And so it is harder than in that kind of study to see whether or not there's any health effects because if you... Um, 
there's just a lot of error in trying okay. to figure out whether someone actually breathed that level of sulfur dioxide or not. So, um, so what that says to me that in those studies for pollutants like that, there could be health effects happening, but it's really hard to observe them in that kind of study. So we need to look at different kinds of uh, study designs and, and try uh, different ways to understand um, those kinds of pollutants impacts on health. Right. So like um, you mentioned, like we're, we're constantly breathing in air, obviously, right? Um, and we could, be, we could be breathing in like ozone and maybe even sulfur dioxide. So what are some of the gases that we might breathe in without knowing? Yeah, so there's um, a lot of air pollution that we're all exposed to every day, uh, even if you don't live in a, a city. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so the, the big ones in the U.S. that are uh, very uh, prevalent um, and we have harder problems controlling are uh, ozone and particulate matter. Uh, particulate matter is uh, tiny particles that you breathe in and they get deep into your lungs and those are problematic. Um, mm -hmm. So those are the two big ones in many places that are a problem. Um, there's also, you know, if you are in um, environments where there's more air pollution, um, so places with lots of traffic, um, particularly um, near uh, diesel uh, emitting, uh, mm -hmm. so trucks or uh, yeah. other diesel burning vehicles, those tend to have some pollutants uh, associated with it. Um, so generally there's, there's, those, there's gaseous pollutants like ozone that you're breathing in, there's some particles, um, there's some metals that you get from uh, traffic and, and power plants as well. Um, there's also some pollutants that come from uh, other sources we might not think about, like uh, cooking. So anytime mm -hmm. you are grilling outdoors or burning a, by a campfire, you know, you're getting some air pollution right. uh, from those sources as well. Um, and uh, uh, well, and relevant to this week, uh, fireworks cause a lot of air pollution. So right. um, my, we have an air pollution monitor on our house, just a little home one, and it spiked really high on um, July 4th night. So uh, that's also like another kind of source that we get localized as well. Right. So what are these impacts on the, on the gases we breathe in? What, what, what do they do to us? Yeah, so it's it's a big uh, problem, and it's especially a problem if you're in a more sensitive group. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it depends on the pollutant, but for ozone, for example, um, people that are more vulnerable to ozone tend to be um, asthmatics or people others people with other sort of respiratory illnesses, mm -hmm. um, elderly um, people with sensitive lungs, and uh, children who still have lungs that are developing because um, mm -hmm. ozone is an, it's an irritant in your lung. And right. so uh, for those groups, it's especially a problem. Um, if you are a healthy adult, you probably won't uh, notice ozone pollution unless it's uh, very exceptionally high. Um, but often we see ozone levels, especially in the summer, times like now, get up to a level where it is unsafe for those sensitive groups to be outside. So, um, so that's probably the biggest thing that you would notice. Um, the other uh, more serious consequences uh, also happen as well. So on uh, particulate matter, for example, it has an association with uh, premature death. So people dying earlier than they otherwise would have died because of the exposure to particulate matter. Um, and so this is a, a pretty serious outcome, obviously. <laughs> thousands, tens of thousands of people every year in the U.S. that die earlier than they would have because of uh, particular matter exposure. So, 
and the more and more we learn about that pollutant, the more uh, harmful it seems that it is, even at lower levels uh, than the current standard. Um, so that's one that we need to continue to watch and, and reduce levels of. Um, yeah, and, there, and there's also some cardiovascular effects where air pollutants can have um, impacts on um, heart attacks and strokes and other uh, cardiovascular system issues. Right. So like the particulate matter is like just lots of like dust that's like clumped together, I guess. Um, is that kind of yeah, what it's it like is? tiny dust. So it's like it's very yeah. tiny. So it's, you know, we're mm -hmm. talking like fractions of a human hair right. uh, with. So you can't see it. Mm -hmm. um, but because it's so small, it gets very deep into your lungs um, and that uh, irritates them and gets into your bloodstream and, and causes problems with your cardiovascular and respiratory systems. Um, and so, yeah, it forms either, uh, it can be emitted directly from things uh, when you combust things. So things like right. um, cars and trucks and, and coal-fired power plants. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also some of it that forms in the air because it can chemically form from uh, from some of the precursor chemicals and then can can form into a, a particle. And so um, usually it's sort of a combination of those um, and they're so it combines with uh, different sorts of um, chemicals that are in the air. Um, and it turns out it's kind of harder to control at lower levels. So um, we have to keep uh, thinking about ways to reduce it because it continues to be a problem. Right. So um, going back to your research on um the cardiovascular uh, emergency department visits. Um, what were your findings? Like uh, when you were finished um, working on that, what, what did you find? Did they surprise you? Yeah, um, I thought it was it was interesting. I think the the biggest thing was uh, the part I explained before about you not being able to detect um, solutions, not being able to detect health effects without um, for the pollutants that are more highly variable over mm -hmm. space. Um, so that was probably the biggest part that was um, surprising to me. I think, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that was sort of interesting is we watched, we looked at different kinds of error and whether or not that would affect um, how uh, you can see the health effects. And um, I, I think the other thing I, I learned was just that, you know, it was fairly robust that even if you use different measurements, you'd still get similar answers. And so if you, you know, see an association in one of these studies, you know, there's, there's decent confidence that that's um, something that's happening in the environment because they do control for all these factors. And when we looked at the measurement error on the air pollution side, it, it's pretty small. Like it, if you just look at, you know, what's the, the sort of um, error associated with monitoring air pollution. And, um, and so, um, yeah, it was interesting to just see how that how that played out, but it was good to be able to quantify it so we knew how big that error was or wasn't. Yeah, it's like if you could see any type of pollution in the air, it would be all around us, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that humans are causing air pollution? Yeah, in uh, the U.S. now, it's a lot of uh, mobile source emissions. Right. So. Um, cars and trucks and also some um, off-road vehicles, construction vehicles, farm equipment, uh, and um, uh, any time where uh, any industrial facilities, so uh, coal-fired power plants continue to be a big one. Mm -hmm. um, also just uh, a lot of the petrochemical industry in general, which, um, you know, isn't uh, everywhere in the country, but places where there's refineries and um, 
yeah and oh and you're in you're in philly right yeah yes. there's some there's some in that area like mm-hmm. delaware um philadelphia as well and one exploded kind of recently in philadelphia actually so um right. refineries can be a problem bo- both from accidents where things actually explode of course that that mm-hmm. becomes an air pollution problem um but also just day-to-day operations there's usually um some level of air pollution that's emitted from there. So that matters a lot if you are a community that lives nearby to those facilities. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, this is big in uh, Texas, Louisiana, a lot of the Gulf South where there are big petrochemical facilities and um, that are doing a lot of uh, activity um, and that has um, air pollution associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some agricultural emissions so um, associated with doing sort of farming. Um, after that, I think that's, that's most of the major ones. There's other sort of more specific kinds of industrial facilities that have air pollution associated with it, different kinds of manufacturing processes. Um, and so that's why it's good that we have uh, laws that make sure that um, facilities have to control their air pollution. Uh, some of those could be tighter and should be tighter um, to protect people, um, but we do have a lot of laws in place that help to control air pollution. Right. So how do we measure um, the pollution in the air, like all the contaminants that are in the air? What instruments do we use? Uh, there's different instruments for different kinds of pollutants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes uh, for particles, um, we can collect the particles. They have little machines that suck right. them up and depending on their, you can control it by uh, weight and um, to try to collect uh, ones that are certain sizes. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's gas chromatography is the, the chemical process that they use to look at a lot of different uh, air pollutants to be able to really tell which kind of air pollutants are in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also uh, some air pollutant monitors like the one I have at my house that is just, uh, you know, it's a laser that goes from A to B and it shines the laser and if it, if uh, air pollutants are in that space, the air, then between they can use uh, the density that they're there and Mm -hmm. the degree to which it affects uh, the laser's ability to hit the other side. And they can use that to get a sense of uh, how much air pollution is in uh, the air. That's very cool. Yeah. So if you ever see, they also have um, handheld monitoring devices. So they have some um, that you can just walk around with and those are like that too and so it's sort of right. just like a quick and dirty estimate um so yeah we have a lot of different tools that you can see it uh the other big way people can tell is from space we have um different methods of looking uh from satellites measurements to estimate air pollution looking down the, the column to earth so that's another way that people measure it so um what are some things that people can easily do like people at home or anywhere uh, that people can do to lower the amounts of pollution we put into the air? Uh, I, so you can think about uh, the biggest ways that people as individuals contribute are probably um, their uh, flight patterns. So anytime you fly, mm-hmm. uh, that's a lot of missions because it uses a lot of fuel to um, right. travel on an airplane uh, and, and car travel to a lower degree, but still important, uh, and um, 
Uh, and then energy use at home. So how much you are using, uh, depending on where you live, there's uh, different levels of air pollution associated with your energy source. Um, if you are in the Pacific Northwest and most of your energy is from uh, hydropower, for example, uh, that's not um, a big air pollution source. And so you are probably not causing much air pollution uh, using energy. Uh, but if you are in a place where your part of the grid is very, um, uh, coal, coal powered or, um, uh, that you'll get a lot more air pollution associated with your, your home energy use. Um, and there's ways that you can decide where your energy is coming from. And, in mm -hmm. um, uh, for where I live, uh, you can opt into a program that makes, makes it so your energy is wind powered. Um, so we do that so that we are not contributing as much to that air pollution. Um, yeah, and the other the other uh, way to do it is to think about what you eat and how intensive uh, emissions for travel and production of the food that you eat are. Um, so there's a lot of resources on that too, and thinking about you know how do you lower the, the footprint, the environmental footprint of what you eat. Right. So like locally um, grown things are probably better. Um, right? Yeah, locally grown things. Um, meat tends to be more energy intensive. So mm -hmm. if you avoiding me doing more um yeah beans and rice and things that are um don't require as much um yeah product energy right. production to mm -hmm. create. so what are some things you do um to make the earth a greener place yeah i uh bike commute so i uh, <laughs> bike in when i go to work which i'm right. of course not doing um during the pandemic but uh yeah i bike commute there um we do a lot of um we compost all of our food waste so it's not going to the landfill um and uh yeah we can um we try to do use like a rain barrel to water our garden so we're not using additional mm -hmm. water and energy um, that way, uh, and we did a lot of, um, we paid to have ins insulation put in our house that was really good. And so it would um, decrease the amount of energy that we're losing to um, the outdoors because um, this is a big uh, waste of energy and money and um, creates air pollution if you are right. spending more um, to um, heat and cool your home in the, the summers and the winters. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we paid to have our house better insulated so we'd conserve more of that energy. Uh, and so that's another big area um, that I do. So yeah, I think there's a lot more that we can do as individuals. And, and then the other sort of um, big piece that I think is important for individuals to think about is how to uh, push your decision makers to do more because mm -hmm. uh, people in positions of power can do way more than any individual can do. So um, in some ways, I think that the most important thing an individual can do is just tell people in power to do something about it. So you can mm -hmm. ask your um, officials either at the local level or or the state or the federal level, you know, what are they doing to address this issue? If, if you want less air pollution, like there's much more that they can do. And so um, I think if they hear from constituents and they hear from mm -hmm. the people that uh, they're supposed to represent, then that can have a big impact as well. Right, right. So like, um, yeah, that, that, that's really good. I, I really like that um, you use uh, rain barrels uh, to water your gardens. That's great. <laughs> So, um, like you said, like, um, like lots of companies uh, are actually making um, 
more carbon emissions, right? Like we, we see that every day. There's companies just dumb, like uh, energy companies, especially. Uh, they're producing lots of waste. There's pollution all over, all, all around, right? So what are, uh, what, and, and they, and they're projecting through media that like what they're doing is supposedly good. So what do you think about that? Uh, that is right. They do a lot of that. Yes. Uh, uh, that is called greenwashing. If uh, mm -hmm. you haven't heard that word before, it's when uh, companies are are uh, not primarily doing environmentally friendly practices, but that that's what they advertise. And so we see this a lot from um, the fossil fuel industry likes to do mm -hmm. this, right? They're, the, the vast majority of their um, portfolio is burning fossil fuels, but they advertise only, you know, the little bit they are investing in wind and solar or anything else they, they do that. They're like, uh, they we're good. Yeah, yeah, paint a better picture. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a problem because I think those are, you know, that that affects people's understanding of what they right. do. And if you if you are someone who's not really digging into this issue, you would you would see that ad and you would think, you know, oh, they are doing great things, Chevron mm -hmm. or, you know, whoever. And, and so I think it is um, a problem. And so um, that there's different uh, ways to deal with that. We can try to put pressure on the companies um, specifically, uh, which, and directly, which um, many groups do and, and my mm -hmm. organization uh, does as well. I work at the Union of Concerned Scientists and we do um, science policy advocacy on a range of issues. But one of those, um, one of those projects is, is focused on the fossil fuel industry and how do we uh, get them to um, first stop blocking progress on, on climate change and other environmental right. issues. Uh, and then also how do we hold them accountable for the damage that they've already done to uh, the environment. So, um, so there's some you can do that. And then there's also just lots decision makers can do to push back on that and try to you know, hold them accountable for any misleading advertising um, and uh, get them to, to work uh, to do better. Um, and then the other big category of how you push back on the greenwashing is through uh, shareholders of the company. So a lot of the companies are uh, public companies, and that means that mm -hmm. they have shareholders who are people that people or um, institutions like banks that control part of the business. So if you can organize shareholders to say, you know, we don't like that you're doing these misleading ads, you know, tell us where your investments really are. Are you really putting in that much toward um, wind and solar? And they can sort of hold them to, a, to account on that and try to get them to make better choices and things like that. But I agree, it's a problem. Right. It's like, um, the decision makers we have uh, that that um, that kind of decide right decide um, whether like we should move forward to try fixing this the the climate issues. Um, they're kind of getting influenced by all this all these like fossil fuel companies, like you said. Like they're just projecting like I'm doing great, but like don't worry, don't worry about us. We're, we're completely okay. But that's not the case, as we see. Right. Right. Exactly. And many of them uh, too. At the same time, they're they're lobbying against climate action. Like, like you said, they're, they're putting money toward making sure we don't make progress on addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very um, two-sided. Right, so we keep talking about energy, right? So like um, we use lots of energy all the time, right? Like are we producing it the way we should and what can we do in the future to like um, uh, fix the issues that we might be making now? 
we really need to transform our energy uh, production system in the U.S. So uh, right now it's uh, very uh, piecemeal and the grid is very um, old and it doesn't accommodate very well putting new sources of energy onto the grid. So we really need to uh, work on that issue. Um, my organization has people that think full-time, think spend their time thinking about this issue and how do you improve the grid so that it does work better with uh, with renewables, with you know wind and solar, and how do you integrate those things so that we can move toward uh, more renewable energy sources and decrease our dependence on uh, fossil fuels, uh, particularly on coal as being the the worst. And um, and so we need to um, figure that out on sort of how we manage it, and um, we also need to subsidize. Um, or change what we subsidize. So right now mm -hmm. we subsidize a lot of fossil fuels, um, which we should not do. They shouldn't be getting um, a subsidy and that makes it cheaper to do fossil fuels, but we should be making it, um, trying to incentivize companies to do renewables, trying to incentivize people and investments to move that direction. Um, so it's, it's a place where we really need a lot more um, leadership uh, at the national level and at the state level to think about how do we how do we push that forward and, and help ourselves make that transition away from fossil fuels because um, right now it is sort of hard but it's improving all the time and more and more uh, solar and wind are more economically competitive so that helps a lot with getting uh, adoption to be quicker um, and as a consumer if you are in a position to um, contribute or invest in any way uh, I think that helps as well and that at least um, you can start to sort of build demand for it so um, I, I, like I told you we we pay to have the energy just come from a wind farm um, so we uh, and we did that because uh, we had a tree that we couldn't get solar on our roof our, ourselves so we figured we could at least pay to invest in having that that way so you can do things like that you can demand that any um, you know, of your banks are investing in the right kinds of things. Um, so we definitely need to move that direction and we're seeing it more and more. So we're slowly right. getting there. Which is good because we want to yeah. keep using renewable energy and move definitely. away from fossil fuels, like you said. So um, I'm curious, like I know renewable energy is great, but are there any downsides at all to renewable energy? Um, yeah, there's definitely things that we'll have to work out and we'll have to make sure that we address when we do that switch. Um, so one thing that people talk about is the intermittency of uh, solar and wind. So the idea that um, you, of course, can only produce solar energy during the day because that's mm -hmm. when the sun is out. Right. Uh, and so um, and same with wind it only works when it's windy. Right. So mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of people that work on that particular problem and how you can, um, you know, either combine those energy sources with other energy sources so that are more consistent so that you can kind of balance it. So when, you know, when it gets dark and the solar goes down, you can ramp up um, something else that, that would right. uh, fill that gap of the energy need uh, when the sun is not up. Um, and so there's a lot of things you can do there. Um, battery storage is also just getting better and better in thinking about how to bet, how can we better and more efficiently uh, transmit and store energy. So there's, mm -hmm. Um, lots of people that work on those issues and think about that. Um, yeah, and right now, I mean, the biggest problem is um, 
the scale. We just need to really ramp up um, renewables right. so that it's enough and a bigger part of the grid. Um, yeah, the transmission is also a, an issue because we need to make sure that uh, the energy source has to be close to where people need it. And the further mm -hmm. away that it is, then that, um, you know, it's less efficient to get the energy out. And so you have to think about, you know, how do you balance having it close to populations that need it while finding, you know, land and the space to do it. Um, mm -hmm. There's, yeah, there's some uh, amount of um, nimbyism. I don't know if, if you know this, but um, not, in, not in my backyard. So people that um, resist having uh, a solar farm or a wind farm anywhere near them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sometimes you get issues like that where people don't want um, a facility to be near them. They don't want to see the facility. Um, so right. that's been a barrier in getting it placed, which um, I don't know is funny. I think they're kind of cool looking and like pretty. I would want yeah. one in my backyard, but, <laughs> but I think other people don't feel that way. So, so there's, um, you know, that's like one barrier as well that we have to do it. And, um, and there's some amount of misinformation you have to um, dispel, you know, it, right. there are these things are new for a lot of people. And so they are sort of concerned about um, what the effects will be and um, nervous sometimes about new technology. So I think the more we can educate people, the more we can show people um, what it looks like and that it isn't uh, something mm -hmm. to be scared of is a, a thing. So, um, and I have a, a backpack that has a solar panel on it mm -hmm. and it just goes to like a little battery and it, it'll right. charge my my phone and uh things and uh i had it um like a decade ago but a lot of people that i encountered you know that was the first time ever seeing a solar panel like they had never seen one and um and so i felt like you know it's it's one small thing <laughs> i could do is like at least show people like this is what it looks like this is what it does like it's charging right. my phone right now and that's like um you know and then more people get exposed to like oh that's how it works oh that's great like why aren't we doing that everywhere right. and so you know i think there's a lot of kind of one-on-one personal education we can do on the renewable front as well right and like especially you talked about like um solar panels um like on like a backpack right um that's that there's a lot of those there and like people who love hiking, well, there you go. <laughs> That's how yeah, you can charge your stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the issue with um, uh, wind windmills are like that it's really loud. And I think people think that they're, they might hurt birds, but I think, so what are the, what are the effects of windmills on birds? Yeah, there is, there are uh, some wildlife issues with uh, wind farms. Uh, they are not worse than other industrial facilities. Right, and in course. fact, we kill way more birds in lots of other yeah. ways. Like, um, for example, there's often open pits that industrial facilities have that then the birds get stuck in, in the pits of um, industrial waste where if they're not like capped and um, airplanes also kill a lot of birds, right. which, you know, we and, don't think yeah. about or talk about. So, um, so yeah, there are those, um, concerns. I mean, I think, uh, but the one thing that I like to think about is, is sort of the, the scales of things. So, you know, it, what is the, uh, problem we're trying to solve? What is the impact of not doing this? And, right. and so on renewables, you know, if we, uh, if global warming runs without any um, abatement, if we don't switch to fossil f switch off of fossil fuels, 
um, then we're continuing to harm the environment and harm people in um, countless ways. And those impacts, uh, in my opinion, will be far greater than um, any small impacts around uh, the effects of windmills. And um, there's right. some, I have a colleague that's written a lot about this issue because I know that is a, a concern of people. And so I think those are, um, you know, worth thinking about how do you minimize it? You know, what can we do to make sure we're not, you know, putting them exactly in the flight path of endangered mm -hmm. species and, and things like that. So, um, and there's a lot of people that work on those issues. And so I think there's ways to make sure that it's, it's minimal. I think we're actually harming more wildlife with our plastic pollution than really with windmills at all. Cause yeah, that's a yeah. good question. I, yeah. I don't know, but that's also right. Problematic as well for wildlife. Right. So, um, we hear, so I've heard a lot about like fusion energy, how that might be like the future that we're, that we're pointing towards. So what really is fusion energy? That is a, uh, it is a kind of nuclear energy that people mm -hmm. are excited about, but um, it's sort of, uh, it, it hasn't played out in the ways that many were hoping it would. So, so far anyway, it hasn't um, really shown us that it, it could work in a, at the scale and uh, volume that we'd want. So, I would be cautious about thinking that is going to be, you know, a big solution in the future. But um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people working on different kinds of energy like that. And I think there's, you know, similar to, to thinking about the trade-offs and, and um, scales on windmills. I think we would do the same on nuclear and, you know, what are the risks of, of doing that? What are the kind of current challenges? And if we ramp that up, what will uh, the risks be? So I think... Um, but I, you know, I think we can continue to research different kinds of energy sources and the more that we can um, explore new things and, and invest in thinking about the problem and the more the economics change and, and uh, fossil fuels look less uh, attractive as we go on through time, then um, that opens more doors for us to think about what are the other ways we can get energy, how can we use less energy, um, the other big one we haven't talked to talked about is um, energy efficiency and ways that we can just uh, as a society use less energy because um, that's a, a lot a lot of times that's where the lowest hanging fruit is that you know it doesn't seem as sexy as talking about new cool technologies but it is um, a place where we can really gain a lot right and I know some some companies I think are working on like windless turbines so, oh, so do you think, oh, okay, well, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, it just like moves like this and like, apparently it generates power, but I'm not really confident that it works because like for more power, you need like the generator and everything. Right. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a vibrational. Yeah. I've heard of that like general as a principle. Yeah. I, but there is a lot of things like that. I think we can scale up like, um, you know, for example, on electric bikes, there's mm -hmm. it. Uh, um, they the pedaling recharges the battery, so you never right. have to charge it. It's just always going. So there's probably lots of things like that that, like, if we chose to invest, we could make it so that things are uh, pretty sustainable, and we're using energy like that that we otherwise are just not. Um, that, that's otherwise just escaping us, and so. 
you know, there's lots of ways to do that. There's sort of heat capture kinds of things where we try mm -hmm. to, um, you know, get the heat or get the methane gas off landfills. You know, there's lots of like creative ways that we can um, be more efficient and uh, use energy that we have more um, better that uh, we often aren't incentivized to do because energy has been so cheap for so long that we just haven't worried about it as a society. Right. But now, um, now that now I think we, we can be thoughtful and we have a lot of smart people that think about these things. And so um, I feel confident we can do better. Mm -hmm. And even like solar energy, we can like put that on everything, right? Cause like suns, whenever the sun's up or even when it's not like, um, you can like put it outside your home, I guess, right? Like lots of people do that and it charges your batteries. Um, and like, it doesn't like store um, the energy for further use so that even in the nighttime you can use it? Like, Yeah, so you can set it up that way and we should be doing that. And that's another one that like once as batteries get better and better, we can do that better. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think a lot about too about parking lots and like the number yeah. of, the, the amount of space we have devoted to parking lots could be solar panels above right. it and things like yeah. that. Yeah. You could yeah. like, um, maybe even one day we could install solar panels on cars and like, <laughs> maybe yeah. that could power them up. That'd be cool. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So how is climate changing affecting how much pollution is in the air? Is there a relationship between these two um, climate crises? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting actually, because addressing one addresses the other in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because a lot of the same sources of traditional air pollutants are sources of greenhouse gas emissions as well and affect right. the climate so the more that we you know if we try to tackle a lot of the energy challenges and that addresses both of the problems so if we mm -hmm. are using less energy if we're using less fossil fuel energy specifically that decreases air pollution and also uh, addresses climate um, issues. So um, that's the so the solutions are often the same. Um, on the impact side, uh, th there is some interplay between air pollution and climate. Um, so one is um, uh, so on ozone, for example, it is mm -hmm. a function of temperature and heat. So the more the hotter it is, the more production of ozone there is. Right. Uh, and so the under a climate um, change changed world so as it gets warmer in cities ozone is gonna be worse and we've already started mm -hmm. to see that happen right. um so that that's one um problem that air pollution relates to uh, climate um there's other pollutants that uh, are actually protective of from uh, global warming so um, there's some air pollutants that reflect um, sunlight back into space and so reducing mm -hmm. uh, the, that pollution actually would increase uh, the amount of climate change that we have. So um, it's sort of an interesting, um, it's an interesting uh, science to think about well, what is the interplay with that and how do you think about trade-offs and where do you see the benefits of um, reduction versus the drawbacks of it. Um, so it's kind of a neat, it's a neat area. Yeah. I think we should continue thinking about it because it is um, hard to figure out, but you know, ultimately we have to address both the air pollution and uh, climate change. So I think, um, we can figure out how to do that and not uh, accept a certain level of pollution just to mm -hmm. get the, the climate benefit. Right. So like, I, that, that's really cool. Like um, one pollution, one type of pollution fights off climate change while another um, puts it right back in. That, that's, that's very cool. We usually think of pollution as bad, but sometimes it can be good. Right. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. sort of an interesting um, 
thing. Right. So um, actually, uh, we're taking this during the COVID-19 time, right? So like lots of people living in like densely populated cities have lots of smog in the air. And that's, that's, that's bad, right? Because you breathe in that um, smoggy air, I guess. And like that, that disturbs your lungs. So how does, does that make them more prone to like other respiratory um, issues? It's a really good question. We're learning more and more about COVID every day and mm -hmm. what the impacts are, but it is clear that the kinds of conditions that um, come from exposure to air pollution, uh, like having a, a lung illness or other sort of respiratory problems, that makes you more vulnerable. It, it is caused by air pollution and it also makes you more vulnerable to uh, COVID, it seems. So people with underlying conditions like that um, have, have fared worse when they get COVID. Um, and so it seems like they're related. And so I think what that says for us now is that we should be considering that when we're deciding how to deploy resources to fight COVID because uh, as COVID hits areas where air pollution is worse, we may be more likely to see more, um, see it be more deadly, see more people right. be affected severely by it. So I think that is a problem. There's some early evidence that shows places with higher air pollution have seen uh, more deaths from COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, they are interplaying and, um, you know, the more that we learn and sadly, the more it, that it hits more places, mm -hmm. um, the disease will be able to learn more about uh, how it, how they interplay and whether there's um, things we should be doing or how we can be addressing um, both of the problems. Right. So like, it's obviously important to take air pollution out of the air. But um, what I, are, are people like taking like the right measures to clean it up? Are they like? <laughs> um, yeah, so it depends on, there's different things that different countries do. So in the US, we have uh, the Clean Air Act at the mm -hmm. federal level, which has been uh, remarkably successful at cleaning the air. So it was passed in 1970. And if you look at the map of air pollution since then, it's, it looks like that. It goes straight down or maybe it's backwards for you, but it goes down and uh, <laughs> right. it is, um, you know, really remarkably successful. And that is because it is based on science. So it says that you have to set air pollution standards based on what protects public health. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it is costly. It doesn't matter if it economically hurts this industry, uh, just do it if it if if the science says it protects people, um, and so that's been really useful at reducing pollution. Uh, at the same time, we are finding that for some pollutants, um, it is still harmful even at the lower levels that we have now. Mm. Um, so we need to keep uh, pushing. So in the U.S., I think we've done a lot. I think now we need to. Um, think about, you know, where we go next, what are the kind of the other ways we can look at, like, what is most harmful to people. Um, the other thing is that uh, in the US, there's also some um, disturbing trends, like people driving more. So the onset of mm -hmm. uh, Uber and Lyft and ride sharing has increased the amount people are driving. Um, and uh, so that's very problematic. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned that COVID is also going to do that because people are going to be more inclined perhaps now to go in their own vehicle rather than right. do public transit. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that is going to have, I think that is going to be problematic for, for several uh, public health issues, including mm -hmm. air pollution. 
um, in addition to, to traffic ac accidents and um, affecting quality of life in urban right. areas, et cetera. So um, yeah, so I think like that's true. Um, internationally, there's, there's just different kinds of concerns and people are sort of balancing uh, quality of life and how do you um, ensure that people can gain access to uh, energy in places that haven't, um, while also considering the environmental impacts. Um, so, um, and then, yeah, I think like cities and states do different things. They're sort of at the local level, there's kind of a different set of solutions because you can change, um, you know, you can put in more trees, you can decide where cars go and don't go, you can do zoning things, you can decide whether or not you're going to build an industrial facility places, which mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of local fights about, you know, should we be able to build this facility here or not? So um, that's um, a challenge. Um, I'm going to need to go in a minute to address a right. crying child. I don't know if you can. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, if you have one last question, I'll take it. I do actually. Um, so um, what advice would you give anyone who wants to become a climate scientist? And what are some things that like students need to learn? in order to become one. Yeah, that's a great one. So, I mean, first I'd say uh, you can do it. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't think that it seems uh, too big or too hard or too scary because we need people to be thinking about these challenges and there's so many different uh, really interesting, rewarding places to go career-wise on climate. We're going to need all kinds of people to think about uh, the challenges, the solutions, uh, measuring things, thinking mm -hmm. about cities, thinking about diseases, thinking about, you know, all kinds of things. And so I think it's a really exciting time. And so I would just mostly want it to not feel too daunting to people because I don't mm -hmm. know, um, you know, if you're just starting out, if it would just seem too big and um, but there's lots of really cool science and policy points to to work on and um, and so I think uh, given the uncertainty about sort of what direction we will go and where the needs will be mm -hmm. I my advice would just be to expose yourself to lots of different kinds of um, aspects to the problem so you know think about different kinds of science that are involved think about different kinds of um, political science or law or other kinds of things that interchange with it because the more you can get exposed to those different things I think that interdisciplinary training will be so useful in a world where we have to figure out these big complex global problems and it's not going to be clear um, you know it's not it's going to be more helpful than having sort of a very narrow specialty mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's where a lot of people should go so so please, please stay engaged. We need you in the movement. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for um, coming. I really enjoyed um, our conversation. Um, and I just, I just, I just really want to thank you for joining me um, and sharing your thoughts about like climate change, air pollution, and what we can do about it. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Saranya. It was great talking to you. Mm -hmm.